the Bible reading or readings today, there's two of them. Uh, first one is Psalm 49, and the second one is from right at the end of Matthew 28. Um, Psalm 49, it will also be on the screen, but Psalm 49 reading can be found on page 885 if you have a black church Bible. Hear this, all you peoples. Listen, all who live in this world, both low and high, rich and poor alike. My mouth will speak words of wisdom. The meditation of my heart will give you understanding. I will turn my ear to a proverb. With the harp, I will expound my riddle. Why should I fear when evil days come, when wicked deceivers surround me, those who trust in their wealth and boast of their great riches? No one can redeem the life of another or give to God a ransom for them. The ransom for a life is costly. No payment is ever enough, so that they should live on forever and not see decay. For all can see that the wise die, that the foolish and the senseless also perish, leaving their wealth to others. Their tombs will remain their houses forever, their dwellings for endless generations, though they had, names, had named lands after themselves. People, despite their wealth, do not endure. They are like the beasts that perish. This is the fate of those who trust in themselves and of their followers who approve their sayings. They are like sheep and are destined to die. Death will be their shepherd, but the upright will prevail over them in the morning. Their forms will decay in the grave, far from their princely mansions. But God will redeem me from the realm of the dead. He will surely take me to himself. Do not be overawed when others grow rich, when the splendor of their houses increases, for they will take nothing with them when they, when they die. Their splendor will not descend with them. Though while they live, they count themselves blessed, and the people praise you when you prosper. They will join those who have gone before them, who will never again see the light of life. People who have wealth but lack understanding are like the beasts that perish." The second Bible reading is from Matthew chapter 28, verses 16 to 20. Um, if you have a black church Bible, it's on page 1554, and again on the screen. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always, to the very end of the age. Thank you, Jono, for reading. Let's, let's pray. Our loving Father, uh, we are dependent upon your word, and so pray, help us, please feed us. Um, by your word, please speak into each of our lives. Uh, give us open hearts and minds and help me to be really clear. We pray that you do your work amongst us. We want to meet you through your message. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, well, apologies. I don't normally start with an apology, but if you weren't here last Sunday, forgive me, but just bear with me. For everyone else who was here last Sunday, what's the first thing that comes after Easter? Sorry? Worship, right? Okay, good. I'm glad you got last Sunday's message. All right. 
When Jesus bodily rose from the dead and appeared before his disciples, the first thing that they did was to worship, to worship him. And then when some doubted because he was the man whom they knew and loved, clearly God was at work in him, but you only worship God, right? So is it right to worship someone in whom God is working? But when some doubted, Jesus set their doubts to rest by saying, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. That is, aside from the Father who gave me this authority, there's no one higher than I, in heaven or on earth. I have authority over life and death, heaven and hell, time and space, the physical creation and the spirit world. It is right that I be worshipped. In fact, it doesn't bother the Father that I am worshipped. He's the one who gave me this authority so that I could be worshipped. You honour the Father by worshipping me. Now, if you were... If you were one of the disciples standing there at that mountain in Galilee, following on from worship, given who you're looking at, what's the next thing that you do? The very next thing. You do, yeah, you do what he says, that's exactly right. Um, you, you'd, you'd talk about it, wouldn't you? You'd, you'd tell people the news. You tell people what you've seen. Now, during May, we're looking at the five key features of being a community of faith which is formed by the resurrection. The first is worship or magnification. Today, we ask, what comes next? What comes after worship? And the answer is mission, all right? That's what Jesus himself said, isn't it? Right after he said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, in the next breath he says, therefore go and make disciples of all nations. Making disciples follows worship. Mission follows magnification. More than that, um, mission is magnif magnification. Mission is magnifying Jesus. It's magnifying the Lord. Remember Psalm 96, if you were here last week. Sing to the Lord a new song. Praise his name. Proclaim his salvation, declare his glory among the nations, his marvellous deeds among all peoples. This is mission, but it's, it's worship as well, isn't it? Because worship is magnifying the Lord, making him bigger in people's eyes. And when it flows from within, uh, when we're convinced by this and it comes out, this is an act of worship. It's impossible actually to magnify the Lord um, in mission without speaking of him. Okay, the difference in what Jesus says in um, Matthew 28 verses Psalm 96 is that he makes explicit the connection between worship and our need to speak about him. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, as a necessary consequence, go and make disciples. He draws a connection between the two. The risen Jesus commissions his disciples to go on mission and he commands them to do it. Now, of course, if you are a worshipping disciple who really does worship him, whose eyes are full of him, then this command is obvious. Why wouldn't you speak of him? How could you not speak of him? How could you stop speaking of him? Mission is the great purpose, the great privilege of every follower of Jesus who's enraptured by him, who really gets it, gets who he is. Mission is a no-brainer. 
Except it's not always like that, is it? Just as there were doubts about worship, which Jesus had to settle, there are doubts about mission, and maybe there are doubts in your mind as well. You know, Australia is so hard. My friends, my family, my work colleagues, they are so resistant. Could God use me? Uh, it must be for someone else, this job. Let me quickly do some myth-busting about the Great Commission. The first myth I want to bust is that, is that this command of Jesus was directed only to the men who are standing there, the 11 remaining apostles, and therefore doesn't apply to us. If you think about it for slightly less than half a second, you realise that this cannot be true. Because if Jesus only meant the 11 apostles and told them to go to all the nations, then you would have to say they have massively failed on a monumental scale. They did not reach the nations before they died. And this would have been a tragedy given that Jesus died for the nations of the world so that all nations could come to know God through him. Now, of course, Jesus knew that they themselves wouldn't reach the ends of the earth. And therefore, it's obvious that he meant other people after them who would carry on their work. More than that, Jesus can't have meant this commission only apply, to apply to the 11 apostles because how are they described? Is the word apostle used? No, it is not. Matthew, in verse 16, calls them disciples. Now, that is the regular term that he uses for every normal follower of Jesus. Point being that this commission was for all of Jesus' followers. The command is for us. Okay, you might say, well, all right, I hear that. I know it's important at the time, but honestly, really, in the sweep of the things we're told in the New Testament to do, it must fall down the ranks of importance because if it was more important, then we'd expect this command, if it was so important, to be reiterated again and again in the New Testament epistles. But you read the epistles and it's, you know, it's not really there. Well, it is there, although I do admit not that much. Okay, here's the myth that the Great Commission is not that important. Now, I can think of two families at uh, the last church I was in charge of who actually left our church because they thought we did too much evangelism. So there are people who think this, and maybe you secretly do as well. In answer, I would have to say to you and myself, when I catch myself thinking this, that we'd have to be very bold to be able to play down a specific directive of the Lord Jesus himself when he has prefaced it by saying, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, and therefore go. You'd have to have a very good reason to say that this doesn't apply to you, or it's not that important. Also, even though it may not come up much in the New Testament, which was written to deal with pastoral issues in churches, do we actually need anything more than what Jesus has said here? I mean, this, this is Jesus' last words that he, say, he says before he ascends to heaven. The last words. This is the agenda that he gives his disciples that he wants them to be about before he comes, comes back. Do you need anything more? I don't think so. The idea that Jesus' command to make disciples is not that important is a myth which Jesus himself busts. Okay, you might think, all right, I know it's for me, I know it's important. All right. What I'll do then is I will manage to mention that I go to church to my neighbour. 
or work colleague, and I might be able to say the word Jesus. And then I fulfilled the Great Commission. Easy. All right, this is the Great Commission equals low-level evangelism myth, all right? Jesus doesn't say, go and just drop my name into a conversation. He doesn't, just, he doesn't even say, go and evangelize, that is, share the good news. No, what he says is something bigger. He says, go and make disciples. What's a disciple? A discipler is someone who is a committed follower of Jesus and knows what that means. In other words, you've got to do the evangelism, yes, but then there's a whole lot of other stuff attached to that. So it's a bigger command. All right. Well, what does making disciples entail? Jesus himself tells us two things. Number one, it means immersing people into who God is. That's what Jesus means when he says, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them into the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Usually, when we hear that word baptize, we think that means getting someone wet, normally after they've become a Christian. And it does mean that, but it means so much more else besides. The root meaning of that word baptize is to immerse. He doesn't say baptize them in water. He says, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them into who God is, into the name, the character of the Lord, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. How do you immerse someone in who God is except you teach them from the Bible about who God is? You explain to them who God is. And yes, this is evangelism, but it's more than that as well. Um, and that takes time. We need to teach people about God and immerse them in who he is. And that happens all the time here, doesn't it? Um, there are lots of disciples out there who are doing it. Parents, every time you're reading the Bible to your kids, you're doing it. Um, basement leaders, blast leaders, you're doing it every Friday night. Um, home group leaders, the mainly music team. In fact, every time any one of us is able to speak about who God is and push people on in their understanding, you are doing this work that Jesus says to make disciples because you're immersing them in who God is. That's exactly what Jesus wants us to do. But it involves more than that. There's a second part to discipleship, and that's to teach them to obey everything that Jesus has commanded. The first part is knowledge. The second is practice. Obedience to what Jesus taught. Now, how do you teach someone, okay, about all that Jesus taught? Well, you, you teach them with words, but also you model it in your life. And this is why it's wonderful coming to a church and being part of a church, because you can see people who are further on in your life, in their walk with the Lord, you can watch how they're walking, you can be taught by them. And if you're in a home group, you can track people through the ups and downs of their year, and everyone will have ups and downs, and you can see what it means for them to try and learn from Jesus how to obey him in the ups and downs of life. It's great being part of a church. Okay. What this means is that if we just minimised uh, making disciples to simply dropping the word church or the name of Jesus into someone's life, we are massively falling short of the task Jesus gave us. He told us to make disciples. That's a big job. 
The last myth is a misunderstanding that fulfilling the Great Commission must therefore mean going overseas. Go, make disciples. We can hear that and think, oh, that's the job for missionaries, because they're the ones who go overseas, right, with the news of the gospel. And then we think we're off the hook, that's for them. The main verb here is to make disciples, and the idea is as you're going, make disciples by teaching them and, and baptising them. The main thing is to make disciples. True, with the eye on the nations, some people, many people, will have to go. Um, I wonder who will be the next person from this congregation who sticks up their hand and says, yes, I will do it. I'll give my life to this or I'll give the next 10 or 20 years to doing that. It would be so encouraging if someone did that. Um, it could be you. <laughs> um, but of course, if the nations come to us, then it makes it a lot easier. We don't necessarily need to cross the seas to do this. Now, in Adelaide, when I first arrived in Adelaide, I was walking around in town and I just wondered. I came from Sydney and I thought, why is it all so Anglo-Saxon here? It felt weird. But in the, in the last 20 years, it's changed. Uh, the demographics have changed. I know that we're a very kind of Anglo-Saxon congregation here. But chances are, where you work, no, 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 it's not the case. You, you may know people. Uh, there are many people around in Adelaide who've come from other countries who we can form friendships with. So we don't necessarily need to go overseas. All right. What we've said is that after Easter, Jesus is worthy of worship. Mission is the great privilege of every disciple. And if we doubt this, Jesus has commissioned us and he set the agenda for what we're about. It's the great privilege, the great purpose of every disciple. So how do you feel? How does that make you feel? Do you feel motivated? Do you go, yes? Do you feel excited, you know, willing to embrace this? Or, hearing all that, does it make you feel guilty? Does it make you feel inadequate, daunted? Because we're not exactly living in a society which is overrun by people who come saying, what must I do to be saved? How do we go and make disciples when people are largely resistant? Well, I think we need God's help. And I therefore want you to come with me to Psalm 49. If you've got a Bible, please turn it up. Uh, if you need a Bible, stick up your hand and someone helpful will run and give you a Bible. It would be great to have... Oh, we've got a, someone with their hands. Okay, can someone, Okay, well done. Thank you, Meryl. <laughs> okay. Um, Psalm 49. It's a brilliant example of how to evangelize people who aren't really interested in God. And I think we can learn from here. What's beautiful is that he doesn't just say, believe in the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved, though that's a good answer. He does something different. He speaks winsomely and insightfully into the life of a non-believer in such a way that we have a lot to learn from it. And we're meant to learn from it. The title of this psalm tells us that it is a song written by the sons of Korah, and that means that the words would have been sung um, at the temple by the temple singers, and they would have been heard, and the song would have been taught to everyone who's come to worship. Now, what happens when you put words to a tune, to music? What happens? They stick, don't they? Because you go out humming that tune, and the words are in your head, 
and throughout the week, it stays with you. Well, given that this, is a, this psalm is a song, we know that it's meant to stick. And as they're in your head and you turn them over, you're meant to meditate on them and reflect and therefore learn from them. This psalm is more than just evangelism. It actually teaches and trains God's people into how to speak of God to people who would rather not hear. What we'll discover is that there are six steps the psalmist moves through as he evangelizes, and I think we can learn from his method. First, there's the grab and the hook, all right? He grabs us. Hear this, all you peoples. He's not just speaking to believers, right? He's at the temple, but he's speaking to a wider audience. Hear this, all you peoples. Listen, all who live in the world, appealing to everyone who's alive, both low and high, rich and poor alike. So he grabs us, and then he hooks us. He says, I'm going to speak words of wisdom. And who doesn't want to know wisdom? He says, I'm going to speak to you personal words of wisdom which come from my heart, which I've thought deeply about and which have application for you. The meditation of my heart will give you understanding. Now, if I can gauge anything from my Facebook feed, well, there's two things. One is that people like funny videos with cats. And the second is that everyone wants wisdom. We want little... Rules of life to live by, little maxims. And who doesn't want to know what's the best way to live? Especially if it's given by someone who speaks out of their own story. You know, you think about how popular TED Talks are, um, which are, you know, this rise of people standing up and talking uh, from their own life experience and delivering in three minutes just the, the, the kernel of what they have learnt about life. They're very interesting and very popular. Um, but this is more because it's set to music. And I think, well, what's a modern-day equivalent of this? You know, a maxim of life that makes you think set to music. I, I could think of, you know, that Harry Chapman song, Cats in the Cradle, okay? You know, that song that makes all dads feel guilty about how they haven't spent more time with their, their own kids. And then... Um, all, all people who listen to it think about how badly their dad has treated them in not spending enough time. So, you know, it gets you thinking <laughs> and, and, and pondering about life, right? It's the same here. But then he says even more, what I've got to say will be intriguing. He says, I will turn my ear to a proverb. With the harp, I will expound my riddle. A riddle. In other words, he's not just going to deliver us the message, which you can go, yeah, yeah, yeah. He's posing a riddle, and a riddle, by its nature, invites you in. It, it, it invites participation. You have to think about it. You have to turn it over in your head. Okay. Now, at the moment, we don't know the riddle, but now we want to, because we think, oh, this is interesting. Um, it may happen that on Monday, normally on Mondays for you, in your group of people that you meet with, they might say, what happened on the weekend? What would you do? Now, occasionally, some of you might have said, oh, I went to church. Normally, that's a conversation killer. <laughs> All right. But if you said, I went and I heard someone speak about God and it was intriguing, you just stop. Now, that's inviting a response, isn't it? That, well, why? <laughs> and then you've got a chance to speak. And he, he does the same sort of thing. He poses the riddle. Verse 5. Why should I fear when evil days come, when wicked deceivers surround me, those who trust in their wealth and boast of their great riches? 
Now, he's speaking of his confidence, but it's not an arrogant way. It's saying, oh, I don't need to fear. I'm not afraid. He doesn't say that. He says, he poses as a question, why should I need to fear? And that, again, invites someone in. It gets them thinking. Questions are very, very powerful. And it's a good question. Why should I fear when people who are very powerful and very rich come against me? And, you know, we're thinking, I'm not sure. But then he says, the problem with the rich is that no amount of money can buy them a solution to death. No one can redeem the life of another or give to God a ransom for them. The ransom for a life is costly. No payment's ever enough that they should live on forever and not see decay. Okay. So having money doesn't help you in the face of death. Yeah, but then he says, but I'm not afraid. So there's the riddle. So what's his secret? What makes him so confident? Do you see by actually posing it in terms of a riddle, he does two things. He, he's able to speak of his confidence and he's also able to attack the weakness of relying on wealth. He's able to attack an idol because the world still thinks that the answer to weakness, in fact the answer to death, is wealth. You take out a life insurance policy, don't you? That's the answer to death. You get health insurance, don't you? There are doctors here, bless you. I like doctors, <laughs> uh, particularly when they fix me, that's helpful. But really, you're only just postponing the inevitable, aren't you? I mean, really. Sorry. <laughs> but you know, like, you know, you've got money, you can afford a good doctor, but it, it doesn't actually get you out of the problem. Okay, so he grabs and hooks us, he poses the riddle, and then he doesn't give the answer straight away. What he does is build the tension. I love this. Now, you need to learn that in, in telling a good story, the secret to telling a good story is you draw out the tension, right? You get people sitting on the edge of the seats. Oh, just tell me, the, tell me what happened. All right, he does this. He draws out the tension. He poses the riddle, draws it out. Verse 10, everyone can see that the wise die that the foolish and the senseless also perish, leaving their wealth to others. Their tombs remain their houses forever, their dwellings for endless generations. He's saying the best that the wealthy can hope for is to lie in a marble tomb. That's the best they can hope for long term. But even then, they're not alive in the tomb, they're dead. Though they had named lands after themselves. You walk up Hindley Street in the CBD, you see these little signs above lots of buildings saying polites, polites. You seen those blue and white signs? You think, what are they about? Con Polites was a Greek property developer who stuck signs up all over every single property that he'd bought. Well, fat lot of good that is. He's dead. Does nothing for him. You can't take it with you. Verse 12, people, despite their wealth, do not endure. They are like beasts that perish. That's the fate of everyone who trusts in themselves and of their followers who approve their sayings. They're like sheep that are destined to die. Death is going to be their shepherd. That's a great shepherd, isn't it? Their forms will decay in the grave. Far from their princely mansions, they can't postpone death inevitably. So he's really ramming home the destructiveness of death which in the end reduces the wealthiest of people to animals that perish. Think of the dead kangaroo, frozen stiff by the side of the freeway. 
Think of that sheep skull that you see in a paddock with everything licked clean. There's nothing hopeful in what he says, except for the hint in verse 14 that in contrast to everyone who perishes, despite their wealth, he says the upright will prevail over them in the morning. Really? Well, presumably he thinks he's the upright. Well, what's his secret? What's his secret to being confident in the face of death? See what he's done? He's grabbed us, hooked us, posed a riddle, drawn out the tension, and then, now that they're really listening, take them to Christ. Verse 15. They who trust in their wealth will perish, but God will redeem me from the realm of the dead. He will surely take me to himself. There's the answer. Now, how does this speak of Christ? Look at the contrast. Verse 7. No person can redeem the life of another that they should live on forever and not see decay. Verse 15, but God will redeem me from the realm of the dead. God will do it. God's his confidence. They think, well, how? how? How does God do this? What payment could possibly be made to buy us out of permanent death? What, I mean, you can't put a monetary price on it. What's a million dollars? No. The ransom for a life is costly. No payment is ever enough that we should live on forever and not see decay. Well, if money can't ransom us from the grave, what about another price? What about a higher price? What about a human life? Well, but which human life? I mean, the life of you or me, we're part of the same problem, aren't we? We're destined to die. Our lives won't count. Except if you had a sinless person then they potentially, yes, they could give their life to redeem a sinner from death. Jesus. But even if a sinless person was to give their life for ours, how many people could that one person ransom from the realm of the dead? And now we get into who Jesus is. See, if Jesus were, was merely human, a sinless human, but not God, then how many people could a sinless human redeem from death. One. Where's the hope for the rest of us? You know, what payment could possibly be given to ransom us all from the grave? Verse 17, the psalm tells us, it's God who will redeem me from the realm of the dead. You see, Jesus is not merely a sinless human, though that would be amazing enough. He is the Son of God, God the Son, who became human. Now, both are important. See, when Jesus died, he had to be fully human to legitimately die for us. If he was an angel, for example, it wouldn't be human beings he's dying for, it would be angels. But to represent us, to substitute for us legitimately, to stand in our place, to take our punishment, he had to be fully human. But more than that, at the same time, he needed to be divine so that when he offered his life as a ransom, it wasn't just the life of a sinless human being, it was the life of the precious, sinless Son of God. A life given that's so precious that his life could redeem the world from the realm of death and bring us into the realm of life. He's the basis for the confidence, he's the secret to the riddle, he's the answer. He buys more than human riches can buy because his life is so much more precious than all the money or wealth of the world. 
Okay. Now, after taking us to Christ, I would have expected the psalmist to wrap it up with a call to faith. But it's intriguing that he doesn't. Step five, he now applies this to the non-Christian with a life lesson. Here's the lesson. He says, don't be overawed when others grow rich. When the splendor of their houses increases, they'll take nothing with them when they die. Their splendor will not descend with them. What does Paul Kelly sing? You might have a happy family, nice house, fine car. You might be successful in real estate. You could even be a football star. You might have a prime time TV show seen in every home and bar, but it's true, you can't take it with you. He gets it from here. Verse 16, though while they live, they count themselves blessed and the people praise you when they prosper. They will join those who have gone before them who never again see the light of life. So he says, here's the lesson. Don't be overawed when others grow rich. We can take nothing with us when we die. Our riches don't go with us. Now, why does he go to this step of application instead of calling people to turn and trust in God? I think it's that because if someone turns and trusts in the Lord, they have to first let go of the other things that they're trusting in if they're going to transfer their trust. Now, he's wanting, therefore, first to demolish the idols, to clear those away for them to come to Christ. And the big idol that everyone hangs on to is wealth, because with wealth, we think, comes power, but it doesn't work. You take out a life insurance policy, but that ends, doesn't it, when you die. It actually doesn't ensure your life. <laughs> That's why step six, he exposes the lie. That last verse, verse 20. People who have wealth but lack understanding are like the beasts that perish. This is the hammer punch, knockdown blow to anyone who has spent their life trusting in riches. But it's necessary, and yet in saying it, it assumes that. This isn't the last time that someone will hear words of salvation. There'll be other conversations after this, other conversations which call people to trust in the Lord, but this is part of it. All right, stepping back, this model for evangelism and how to speak to people is really helpful, I think. It, it teaches us, and you can take away things from this. You've got to grab people. Listen to me. You've got to hook them. I'm going to tell you something. Wisdom. Um, you can pose a riddle. You think, I'm not really good with riddles. But if you speak personally of your confidence that you have in Christ, the difference that, being a, that Jesus makes for you, but you don't mention the word Jesus, but you just speak of your confidence, that's a riddle because other people don't have that confidence. And then they'll think, wow. And then you draw out the tension. You expose the kind of foolishness and the falseness of what other people rely on. You say, well, I haven't got that. And then you take them to Christ. And then you apply it with a life lesson. Because people still do want to learn wisdom. And we have a lot of wisdom to share. Um, others may be experts in their field, but they can lack wisdom about what life's about. Um, I think we take it for granted. And in a summary statement, you can expose the lie they've been depending upon. Okay. Psalm 49 is really helpful. <laughs> 
But let's talk about mission at Trinity Church Aldgate. Now, very quickly to finish. First of all, we've chosen a course which follows the pattern of evangelism modelled for us in this psalm. It's gentle but, but direct at the same time. It gets people thinking. It invites them in. It's called Life Explored. You've seen the teaser. Okay, it wasn't in your face. It was interesting, intriguing. It was trying to tap into questions which people have. And this is a course which takes people through the Bible, but every time it talks about a different aspect of who God is and speaks about this and applies this to their lives. It's a very, very helpful one. It's going to start on Wednesday, May the 22nd at Richard and Beck McClellan's place at 7.30. It really is a good one to invite someone to once for the first night. Don't get them, don't get them to sign up for the whole thing. Just say, come once, and if you like it, come back. Second, um, you may recall earlier on in the year we had a guy named Richard Borgenon come from London. He was an insurance salesman <laughs> with Leeds or something. Uh, but he, and an evangelical guy, he went to a, goes to a big church. But he was um, wanting to teach us how to uh, read the Bible one-to-one -one with someone, going through John's Gospel using a resource called Word One-to-One. You might think, I'm not an expert. This is the brilliance of this thing. Um, it has all the profound thoughts that you need to say written down in the book alongside the text. It's very explicit, and there aren't too many profound thoughts. Everyone can, can lead someone through that, so that's available. And finally, you could join the mission team. We're building a mission team under Richard and Beck McClelland uh, to spearhead mission and mission activities here. So if you're someone who really has a heart to reach people, or you're someone who likes organising events, or you're someone who's networked, you've just actually got a lot of friends and you like talking and having people over, um, you're a good, per a good person with ideas of what might work, we would love to hear from you and love to have you in that team, and please speak to Richard and Beck or myself. A lot to digest and take away, let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much for Jesus' commission for us to go and make disciples of all nations. And we realise we've got a big job, but we thank you that we don't do it alone. Jesus is with us, and we thank you for this group of people uh, with whom we're able to do it together. So we ask, help us to see outwardly, not inwardly, and to really make a difference. So we pray that in a year's time, we'd be able to look around and see faces of people here who are not here now, um, Maybe people who we already know, who've come to know Christ, and maybe people who we don't know yet. But we ask, Heavenly Father, that you'd answer this prayer. And we ask it for Jesus' sake, that we may spend more time in heaven with them, and that they would call him Lord as well. In Jesus' name, amen.